This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Dr. Pat Crayer and is part three of our Lent 2017 series. As you know, Joan and I uh, served in Peshawar, Pakistan and Kabul, Afghanistan for almost 30 years. Uh, Four years ago, we returned to the United States and I took on the role of Executive Director of the U.S. Office of InterServe. InterServe uh, is an international, interdenominational organization, uh, mission, we don't usually use that word. Um, we're the second oldest in the world. And so you'll probably wonder, who's the oldest? Uh, it's the British Bible Society. We started in 1852. And our calling is to focus on the unseen quarter, the quarter of the world's population that has absolutely has absolutely no no personal access to a follower of Jesus Christ. Why that's so important is 95 to 97% of everyone who's ever come to faith has come to faith through a personal relationship with another believer. And so, if these millions, really billions of people don't have a personal relationship with the follower of Christ, Fact is, they're not going to. So, helping the church see and to reach out to these peoples is part of our calling. Representing Jesus among them is our passion. And I think as we go through John 4 today, you'll see why it's our passion. Uh, We're currently journeying through the Lenten season, and the church has chosen John chapter 4 as one of the gospel passages for this season. So let's explore John chapter 4 to see if we can discover the reason why. And so open up, well, it's in your bulletin, Look at John chapter 4. If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 4. And let's unpack some of what we see there. And let's start with the opening verses. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself who baptized, but his disciples, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. This chapter starts off with John raising a red flag. He's red flagging a significant problem, a problem so serious that Jesus has to leave Judea immediately. Uh, Jesus' ministry has taken off, and he's an upcoming rising star. And the Pharisees, evidently, are not very happy about this. We're not told why. Nonetheless, Jesus realizes the danger and decides to leave Judea at once. John wants us to feel this tension. Now he's been building this tension since chapter one. 
For John the Baptist identified Jesus initially as, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, everybody who knew, every Jewish person there would know that the Lamb of God would signify the Passover, and that lamb was sacrificed. And so that's already, we're getting an indication of what's to come in the story. But then in John chapter two, when Jesus' mother comes to him and says they have no wine, he goes, what, what, what's that all about? My hour has not yet come. And he, Jesus is thinking of the crucifixion. And then right after that, Jesus is in the temple and he says, I will destroy this body and in three days, in this temple, and in three days raise it up again. And we're getting an indication there is something coming that's, that's very unpleasant. And then in John chapter 3, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so we're getting these indications of tragedy to come. And so here we have this tension rising. Why does John want us to feel this tension? One of the chief characteristics of the prophets of Israel was that they could feel the angst, the anguish, or the pain of God. Let me give you an example. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 4. There Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Isaiah, in this passage, feels the pain God feels due to the sins of his people. And he describes God's pain through the metaphor of the gardener in the vineyard. God had worked so hard to develop his vineyard, and all he got for his hard work and his watchful care was sour grapes. Not only did the prophets feel the pain of God, they also felt the pain of others. Jeremiah is an example of a prophet feeling the pain of others. Look at the depth of his feelings in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. In chapter 4, Jeremiah sees the judgment of God coming upon his people due to their rejection of God. And on seeing this, Jeremiah cries out, Your ways and your doings have brought this upon you. This is your doom. How bitter it is. It has reached your very heart. And in, in response to what Jeremiah sees, he says, Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Paralyzing, paraly, paralleling this grief over the coming destruction of his people, in chapter 8, verse 21, he cries out, Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn, and horror grips me. The ability to see beyond oneself 
and feel the pain of God and the pain of others is an integral aspect of the prophetic gift. My friends, this prophetic gift is something that the Lord wants to give to each and every one of us. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, it says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Why does God want to pour out his Spirit on all flesh? So that all may prophesy. We who are in Christ are called to be the prophetic people of God. Now, prophecy is not just limited to foretelling, telling about the future, or forthtelling, telling about God's, giving God's word for this day. It also includes the incredible gift to see through the eyes of God's heart into the lives of others and feel their anguish and feel their pain. And when we get this kind of vision, the vision given by the Spirit, then we're no longer, we are no longer the same. A radical change takes place. Our feelings begin to change. Our view of reality begins to change. And our priorities change. This Spirit-inspired vision becomes the heartbeat for justice. It becomes the heartbeat for compassion. And this vision becomes the heartbeat for serving. In places like the unseen quarter of our world, in serving among the Muslims, the Buddhists, and the Hindus who have no personal access to a follower of Jesus Christ, That was just the introduction. <laughs> this is God's word. There is absolutely no other book in the world like that book. And we're not to treat it like any other book. Our Lord uses this book to enable us to think and feel in ways that we could never think or feel on our own. He uses this book to transform us into his image and his likeness. And so I want us to pause. I want us to pray, to look to God, to speak to us today, to move upon us in a way that radically changes us. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your spirit. You have given us the, your spirit so that we could know you, experience you, so we could know your ways. Lord, pour out your spirit afresh and anew and upon us right now and unpack your word to us so that we see things we didn't see before and so that we open our hearts to be transformed in ways that we could never have possibly imagined. 
For you are exceedingly abundantly able to, beyond, to do beyond all we can ask or think. And so do that now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue with the story, verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. Now John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. If Jesus had to leave Judea to, due to the potential for conflict with the religiously devout, he could have gone straight up the Jordan River to get to Galilee. But John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, but he doesn't tell us why. John uses the Greek word day, which he uses in other places in the gospel to denote divine necessity. So we can only learn why this was necessary by joining Jesus in the journey. Yet, be forewarned, this is a bit of an uncomfortable journey. For on this journey, Jesus crosses social, ethnic, religious boundaries. Boundaries that we as human beings and we as the devout people of God are often reluctant to cross. So let's unpack the boundaries that Jesus had to cross. Verse 5. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his, to his son Joseph. That's a repeat. Let's start with verse 7. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Immediately we encounter significant ethnic and religious boundaries, centuries of conflict and prejudice had shaped the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. They had fought wars against each other. And fighting wars never helps in building good relationships. The Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, but they didn't accept the historical books or the writings of the prophets. So their faith's a bit dodgy. And the Samaritans interacted freely with Gentiles, and they liked King Herod. So, not only was their faith a bit dodgy, they were, in evangelical parlance, worldly. So, devout Israelites, wanting to keep themselves pure according to the law, had a number of good reasons to keep their distance from the Samaritans, and they looked down on them. Yet, in this encounter, we see a radically different dynamic arising. Jesus is a devout Jewish man, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Devout Jewish men did not talk to women they didn't know. And to top that off, Jesus is even willing to drink from the Samaritan woman's water jug. And John highlights the importance of this by saying, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. So, whoa, within just a few seconds, Jesus defied some significant cultural, social, and religious standards 
Jesus' behavior is so out of the norm that it even startled the Samaritan woman. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Now, John had told us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, we're just beginning to discover the reason why. He did it for us. He did it to motivate us to discern and then break down the social, cultural, and religious boundaries that we create for ourselves as safety nets. Safety nets that are meant to preserve our godliness, but in fact, actually serve to make us unloving. It is so normal for us who are devout to develop moral standards and attitudes towards others that become barriers to God's purposes. And we see this suffering, we see this surfacing in the church in Acts. Notice that when the persecution arose after the killing of Stephen in Acts chapter 9, only Philip went to preach to the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, Peter reaches out to Cornelius. But immediately thereafter, when he returns to Jerusalem, he's called on the carpet by the church for doing that. And at the end of the meeting, the church accepted that God was doing something unaccepted. But social, cultural, and religious barriers remained in the attitudes and the behavior of the Jewish church. In Acts, chapter 9, verse, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we read, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. These Jewish followers of Jesus only presented the gospel to other Jews, and this is so human. We connect with those who are like us. But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. Luke points out that a few were different. In chapter 11, verse 20, we read, but among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Now, why were the dispersed Jewish followers of Jesus so reluctant to interact and reach out to the Gentiles among them? And why were a few willing to break out of the norm and cross deeply ingrained religious and cultural boundaries? Now, these Jews who did were Hellenist Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene. They were not among those who had grown up in Judea. So, since these men had grown up among Greeks, by the grace of God, they saw the Greeks through the eyes of God's heart. And because of the grace of God upon them, they cared for these Greeks. And they were willing to break out to the well-established norms and behaviors and reach out to their Greek neighbors in love. Now, these details and acts are written there for us. So we ought to ask ourselves the same question. Are we reluctant to interact with those around us? If so, why are we? 
I think one reason may be because we don't see them through the eyes of God's heart. Sure, we see them with our natural eyes, but when we look at people with our natural eyes, we often don't like what we see. Let's be honest. Some of them are difficult to be among. They swear. They talk about things that we don't like to talk about. They mock our faith. So the bottom line is, they make us feel uncomfortable. Let's jump back to the woman at the well. I mean, this is a woman that made people feel uncomfortable. She did not have much of a reputation in her own town. We know that because she came alone at noontime to get water. That's not the normal time women in a village would go to get water. They go early in the morning before it gets hot, or they go five or six in the afternoon when it's cool. And she's alone. So this indicates that the other women of the village viewed her with disdain. And in verses 16 through 18, we find out why. She had the unfortunate, the unfortunate fate to have had five husbands. And the, and the man that she's with now is not her husband. This is not a woman that the average person would extend compassion. Even the women of Samaria, Sychar, didn't have compassion for her. And at the least, they saw her as jinxed. She's got bad luck. Maybe she is bad luck, and we'll keep our distance from her. Now, this is why Jesus had to go to Samaria. In this journey, he undermines and challenges our deepest attitudes and values about what constitutes godliness and about the people around us who are not like us. Jesus calls us to follow him to Samaria, to examine who we have allowed ourselves to become. He calls us to redefine ourselves by our relationship with him as being those upon whom he has poured out his Holy Spirit. We are called to be those who dream dreams, those who prophesy, those who see what God sees and who feel what God feels, those who see the brokenness of the lives of the people around us, those who feel their deep pain. This seeing drives us to journey through Samaria with Jesus. It compels us to cross deeply embedded social and religious boundaries, barriers, to be like the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who cross ethnic and religious barriers and represent Jesus among those who are not the people of God, but whom God wants to invite to become his people. This happened to Joan and me, and it's happened to many we know. God opened the eyes of our hearts and he enabled us to see the unseen. And this seeing drove us to Jihad Central, to Peshawar, Pakistan. What you read in the news, we saw with our own eyes developing right before us. 
It drove us. The seeing drove us to Kabul, Afghanistan. But we didn't just see the radicalism. We saw the many people who whose lives were absolutely destroyed by this radicalism. We lived among the many who lived in fear and in hopelessness. In 2003 and 2004, in the area of Kabul where we lived, there was no electricity. And this was shortly after the Afghan and international forces had ejected the Taliban from the country. And due to the years of conflict, by 5.30 in the evening, no Afghan was left in the, in the streets of the city. The streets were completely empty. They were afraid to be out in the streets in the dark. After a few months in being in Kabul, we set up a solar system in our compound, and we put a light out on the street by our gate. There was a woman who lived right across the street from us. She was suffering from PTSD, and she told us that she often woke up in the middle of the night in filled with fear. After we put up the light, she still would wake up terrified, but she would look out and she would see our light. She said that the light told her that we were there in that compound, and our presence there helped her feel like everything will be okay. The Lord used that light in our presence to calm her fears, and she was able to go back to sleep. We have friends working right now in the Middle East, caring for refugees who have been absolutely devastated by war. We have workers caring for Yazidi women who have been raped by ISIS soldiers, women who have lost everything. My friends know one woman who escaped and she was able to rejoin her family, but because she had been raped and had had three husbands while, in, while under ISIS control, her husband wants nothing to do with her. She can't even stay in the tent with him. She is his wife. She's the mother of his children. But he sees her as defiled. And he can't stand to even have her in the same tent. Oh, the depth, the depth of the brokenness of our world. We have friends working in South and Southeast Asia with those whose lives have been devastated by being trafficked. We have people working in some of the hardest places of the world. And why is this? Is it because these people are superhuman? Not in any way. They're just like you. They're just like me. None of these are superhuman. The only reason they're doing what they're doing 
is because they have received the Spirit. And the Spirit has enabled them to see what God sees and to feel what God feels. And this compels them to live as those who no longer live for themselves, but live for Christ who loved them and gave himself for them. On our own power, we simply cannot even begin to comprehend how utterly broken and desperate people's lives are. But this is why Jesus wants to give us his spirit so freely and liberally. Look at what he says to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Just as Jesus encouraged the Samaritan woman to ask him for the living water, which is the Holy Spirit, Jesus encourages us to ask for the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us his spirit so that we can be his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece. And we have been given the spirit so that we can be those out of whom flow rivers of living water. So Jesus can make, use us to make the unclean clean and to make the unholy holy. And this is why he has entrusted to us his holy gospel. Now notice, after Jesus' encounter with this woman, and after she discovers that he's the Messiah, Jesus entrusts the Samaritan woman with the gospel as well. Look at John 4, 28. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? So they left the city and were on their way out to him. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Due to her interaction with Jesus, the Messiah, the Samaritan woman was transformed. She was no longer an outcast, no longer overwhelmed by her own shame and isolation, no longer unclean, no longer unholy. This release from shame so amazed her that she left her water jar, went back to the city, and directed everyone to Jesus, asking everyone if this Jesus could be the Messiah. And they all rushed out to take a look for themselves. And then the entire city came to believe, and notice what they believed. They believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Their encounter with Jesus and their faith in him immediately enabled them to see way beyond themselves. Why did Jesus have to go to Samaria? 
He did it to help us see that Jesus isn't just our Savior, that he's the Savior of the world. Jesus had to go to Samaria so that we could see the people in our world in a different light. We cannot allow ourselves to be shaped by what we think is right and by what everyone around us says is right. We have been given the Holy Spirit so that we can, we can become a prophetic people, a people who can see what God sees and what God feels. And this seeing, this seeing enables us to become an emboldened people, not an embattered people. To be so emboldened that we go forth into the world and become the embodiment of Jesus in those spaces and to those people that we previously deemed flawed, unworthy, desperately evil, or desperately dangerous. Jesus is not just our Savior. He is the Savior of the world. Oh, may the Lord pour out his Holy Spirit upon us, and may he jettison us out of ourselves and into the world that he loves so much. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And behold the holy people of God whom he has sent forth into the world. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.